there, I'm Dr. Susie Green, founder and CEO of the Positivity Institute, a positively deviant organisation dedicated to creating a flourishing world. And it's my pleasure to welcome you back to the Positivity Prescription Podcast Series 2. The series is based on my 6M model of flourishing, which includes six core capabilities that I believe and decades of research supports are essential in creating a flourishing life. So join me as I talk to experts from around the globe about the six M's, mood, motivation, might, meaning, mindfulness, and mindset. They'll share their experiences and insights together with practical strategies to proactively improve your mental health and well-being. So let's get started. Dr. Sarah Edelman is a clinical psychologist, author, and trainer. She's worked in psychology for over 25 years, originally as a researcher in health psychology and subsequently as a lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney. Sarah now works as a psychologist in private practice, dealing mainly with anxiety disorders. She also conducts training programs for mental health professionals, government, and business organisations. Sarah ran a program on cognitive behavioural therapy at Sydney University Centre for Continuing Education for over 20 years and has been facilitating training programs for the Black Dog Institute since 2006. Sarah's published many articles in professional and mainstream journals and is a regular guest on ABC Radio. She has authored three books, including Change Your Thinking, which is a bestseller in the self-help genre, and I can certainly attest to that. Her most recent book, No Worries, A Guide to Releasing Anxiety and Worry Using CBT, was published in 2019. Well, hello, Sarah. Thanks for joining us today for the Positivity Prescription, and we're focusing on mood. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks <laughs> thanks for inviting me, Susie. Not a problem. And we do go back a little way. I'm trying to think how many years it is. I know you ran that very successful course at Sydney University Centre for Continuing Education. <laughs> I know it was booked out. Every time I refer to a client, they'd say it's booked out, Susie. And of course, your accompanying book, Change Your Thinking, which I just did a bit of positive reminiscing with you uh, to suggest that, you know, it's one of my go-to books, highly recommended books. And I often say, say to people, if I had a dollar for every time I referred to Sarah's book, I'd be a very rich woman these days. Oh, maybe you deserve a dollar. (laughs) Maybe I should should pay you commission. That's that's very kind of you, Susie. Yeah, no. And and you also uh, very kindly helped out with a project I was working on at University of Sydney in one of the residential colleges a, a number of years ago now. And I thought you might like to hear, I presented at a corporate, in a corporate setting, pre-COVID it was, and mm-hmm. one of the young men from that residential college had uh, was now working in this uh, corporate setting. And can I just tell you, Sarah, he was so far ahead of everybody else. He really, you know, had a good grasp of uh, particularly some of the mood techniques and mindset. And so, yeah, so it was... Oh. It, it's nice to see because we do lack some of that longitudinal research, particularly out of POSED, to see the impact of whether it does sink in and make a difference. But I thought that might be nice to just reflect on that it did seem to make a difference. And he can, he he came up and said, no, it was wonderful to have that opportunity. Oh, thank you, Susie. That's that's always gratifying to hear. Thank you. Isn't it? So, <laughs> so, Sarah, we are talking about mood today, but really when we look at the six M's, you could talk to any of them. And, of course, they're all interrelated in, in many ways. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me what does mood actually mean to you? 
Yeah, so often people confuse it with emotions and it, I guess mood is a feeling and so are emotions, but emotions tend to be, emotions, things like anxiety or anger or guilt, shame, sadness, irritation, they tend to be transient and they're often very brief. So even when people say, I feel so guilty, they have periods of experiencing guilt, but it passes, or they have periods of experiencing anger, but it passes. Whereas mood is a less intense, uh, but often more ongoing state. Um, So it's, again, it's kind of a feeling state. It's a subjective state. And we experience mood as either positive or negative or neutral. And it's there in the background and it often exists in addition to or even in the absence of emotions. Mm. And the particular mood state, you may feel, you know, so for example, some people will say, look, I feel very flat. And that may last for days or weeks or sometimes years, so longer mm-hmm. periods of time. What they're really saying is my, my mood is low or we may, many of us just operate with a neutral mood where we feel neither particularly elevated or charged or, or, or happy, but we, we don't feel too low either. So it tends to be a little bit more variable. And one of the things is that people can't always pinpoint why their mood is the way it is. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And I know there's some interesting, I guess, beliefs or under understandings as to why that might be the case too. Mm. And, um, mm. and you often do hear people say they're either in a, a good mood or a bad mm-hmm. mood. And um, but as you said, a lot of people often they're neither. They're sort of uh, and and the language we use around that, I guess, there's uh, some debate or um, mm-hmm. you know whether that's content or neutral. As you said, uh, I guess that's still up for debate. So which areas of psychology? do you think the term draws from mood? Is it drawing from multiple areas or do you think it really has been the realm of clinical sight primarily in the past? I'm not sure about that, Susie. Mm. I know that I guess all psychologists are aware of mood and aware of the impact of mood on our lives and on people's lives. Certainly, I think if any any psychologist who studies psychology will will learn about mood very, very early on and start to sort of make sense of how it impacts on people's lives. Yes, but particularly, I guess, within clinical psych, that has been the area and that uh, has been the key focus, particularly when moods aren't great. And uh, I often, again, reflect on my lectures, Sarah, and I'm not sure if it's changed. I really hope it has, but I know all, most of my lectures were on fear, anger, shame, disgust, and guilt. We didn't really have any lectures on positive emotions or mood states when I was studying for clinical psych. You probably had some lectures on depression and mood disorders, uh, yes. and really that's still talking about mood. But I guess if we're looking at clinical psychology, the the focus is more on negative mood states because that's what we want to heal. So clinical psychology is all about helping people to heal from emotional distress or emotional pain or mental illness and help to lift up their mood. Whereas I guess positive psychology sort of takes a, a different approach, which is more about, well, you know, you, you, you may be already psychologically healthy. What sort of things can we do to help you feel even better? Yes, that's right. Or, or sustain that. So you're absolutely right. So you have a very long history in this area, Sarah. What has been your approach to the treatment of mood disorders? And I guess, has it changed over time? 
So when we're talking about mood disorders, we're really talking about addressing mental illness as yes. opposed to just day-to-day functioning. So I, I guess the most common um, mood disorder that people think about is depression or what, what we call major depressive disorder. But it also includes things like bipolar disorder, cyclothymic disorder, mm. which is really a mild version of bipolar disorder, and also premenstrual dysphoric disorder. So And then dysthymia or what's now called persistent depressive disorder and seasonal affective disorder. So there's a whole lot of different uh, mood disorders. And generally, when we look at treatment, um, one of the key starting points is trying to make sense of what's going on for that person, understanding perhaps their history, understanding their family history, perhaps even identifying some of the biological predisposition, which may be reflected in a whole family history and family tree of people who suffered from depression or from mood disorders. I think a lot of treatment is about psychoeducation or helping people to understand how low mood and how mood disorders actually affect our thought processes. And one of the problems about low mood, when we have low mood, is that it actually changes the way that we think and the way that we perceive ourselves in the world. So most people are aware that negative thoughts create negative emotions and may even affect low mood. But what they often don't realise is the opposite is also true. So when we feel sad, when we feel low, when we feel hopeless, it actually changes the content of our thoughts and our thoughts become more pessimistic. We experience this global pessimism where things will never never feel good again or we perceive that things will never be good again. And so actually even understanding that just because you think it doesn't mean it's true, just noticing the thoughts. This is where things like mindful awareness is, is really useful, just observing your own thought processes, noticing rumination, which is part of low mood, noticing how your mind is constantly drawn to the most negative and being able to observe it with curiosity and without always sort of engaging in the content of your thoughts. So I guess part of this is, you know, this is the classic ACT approach. Yes. Uh, but in addition to that, we get people to use um, mood journals uh, and there's a whole lot of apps that people can use to track their moods. Um, one of the ones that I often recommend is iMood Journal, but there, there are many others. So just observing uh, mood on a daily basis, tracking and even noticing what else is going on when their mood is low. We, of course, use use all these sort of the natural lifestyle things to help people to lift their mood, like physical exercise, healthy diet, we know now, is really important in not just physical health, but also mental health. And in fact, anything you do that is good for your physical health is also good for mental health. And sleep hygiene, gratitudes, which we know is a central part of positive psychology, is also really helpful in clinical psychology and also of course some of the you know the, the key components of cognitive behavior therapy which is learning to notice what your thoughts are saying sometimes just observing thoughts and recognizing reasoning errors in your thinking sometimes learning to develop cognitive flexibility so whole range of There's treatments so I guess. much isn't there yeah. Sarah? There's there so really is yeah in there that you've covered but um I guess you've highlighted the important role that mindfulness plays and I think you know again since my early training in this field as you mentioned ACT has come through acceptance and commitment therapy or training Mm -hmm. and other types of uh, psychological approaches mindfulness-based stress reduction and uh, it really has seems to be a beautiful fit in terms of being able to 
observe those thoughts rather than necessarily be, uh, I guess, a victim to them in, in many ways. Yeah, and I also think that some of the, I mean, the, the classic cognitive CBT process of reframing challenging sometimes is a very difficult thing to do when people are in a in a depressive state and I've seen a lot of people who will say look I've tried this it just it feels meaningless it's really difficult to do and I think a lot of the CBT stuff is actually more effective in building cognitive flexibility when people are not in a deeply depressed state so I think as just a way of developing good mental health good mental strategies, learning CBT and and the whole idea of just being flexible in the way that you think, learning to challenge, uh, recognise unhelpful thinking patterns or what we call reasoning errors and challenging those is really useful in, I guess, building resilience to negative emotions further down the track, but sometimes really hard to apply when you're in a in a depressed state, especially when you're in quite a significantly depressed state. And in, in from that perspective, I think sometimes it's just easier to and more effective to observe the negative thoughts, recognize that my brain is doing this at the time, sitting with and even allowing those experiences to happen. One of the interesting that happens when people are depressed is they kind of get this secondary depression about depression. And this is true with, with most unpleasant, unwanted states. Mm. So we have the primary state, which is, and it might be sadness or hopelessness or anxiety, or in my case, I see a lot of people with somatic conditions. So it might be dizziness, it might be unwanted physical sensations, may even be pain or headaches. And what happens unconsciously is we're dealing with the discomfort of the primary problem. And then on top of that, we have this resistance, this distress that we experience about the, you know, whatever we we are experiencing. So one of the things with mindfulness, and I guess this comes straight from ACT, is allowing yourself to just experience without resisting, without fighting, just releasing that resistance. I often use the word surrender during mindfulness. And sometimes people don't like the idea of surrender because they (laughs) say, oh, hang on, if I surrender, you know, it'll never go away. I'll I'll, I'll always, I'll be depressed forever. But, you know, if, if you can just allow yourself to just sit with and open up and be curious and observe with a completely open, accepting mind. Interestingly, that that second factor, you know, the depression about depression or the, the response to the unwanted state tends to dissipate. And interestingly, people often feel better. I mean, it's sort of in some ways counterintuitive than when we just allow through the process of mindfulness to just allow ourselves to experience whatever is there, that the actual experience itself often softens and changes. Exactly. I think you've made some really good points there that I guess I've sensed and taken that approach over the years as well in terms of uh, having worked clinically and in the early part of my training, being trained specifically around CBT and then as as ACT came through. But as I started working more in an executive coaching process and and also then facilitating workshops in schools with positive education, uh, I could see that um, if somebody wasn't 
you know, struggling with clinical depression, that they did find learning, you know, the skills of CBT quite easy, really. Like they, they yeah. were able to learn yeah. them, get them and apply them relatively easy. Whereas working with someone that was quite clinically depressed, it was very hard going, um, as you said, to help them. And for me too, that shift towards ACT rather than getting into a battle. I know a lot of my clients used to say, I'm having a, you know, a fight mm. with my aunts, my automatic negative thoughts. Yeah. And so moving more to that observing. And I love the analogy from ACT, which is you can take a seat on my bus. So you can invite the uncomfortable or discomfort in and take a seat on the bus, whether that's thoughts or emotions, but you're not driving the bus. So I'm driving the bus. I've always liked that analogy as well. Yeah. So just noticing its presence. Yeah. But there is a component of CBT, which I, I, I would still encourage people to do, and that's the behavioral activation. So people often think about CBT as largely cognitive reframing, disputing or challenging negative beliefs. And I think learning to be more co- uh, flexible in your thinking is, is a really useful tool. But during a depression, I think the behavioral strategies are often perhaps at least as important, probably more important. And there's a number of things, you know, that's so the classic, the, the, the B of the CBT, which is the behavioural strategies, things like um, really just focusing every day on doing something that gives you a sense of achievement yes. and doing something that is inherently uplifting. So or what we call mastery and pleasure. And the achievement might be for some people just getting out of bed and uh, making breakfast and having a shower, or it may be going for a walk, or it may be making that phone call that you've been putting off for a long period of time. And and pleasure may be, you know, direct mood enhancing effects and it might be um, something like, you know, playing with your pet or exactly. reminiscing over some photos or going, going along to that choir that, you know, the group that you normally go to that you've kind of been avoiding. And sometimes people say, yeah, but I know I won't enjoy it. And that may be true. You may enjoy it less then if you normally, if you're not depressed and you go along, you, may, you maybe enjoy it more, but sometimes just doing it anyway because it does give you a sense of achievement is still worth doing and sometimes you, you surprise yourself and mm. you, can, you can still enjoy it. So really the behavioural stuff is really, um, I think, very helpful in getting people to sort of remain active and uh, even if they're sort of finding it hard to challenge or to really do any of the the real cognitive reframing, just focusing on gratitude. So every day you need to notice two good things that happened today or two things that you're grateful for in spite of the general feelings of negativity. What two things happened today that you are grateful for? And when people really look for them, they're still able to find them, even if they're as as minor as, you know, I I finally made that appointment or I, you know, I had a conversation with my um, daughter or granddaughter, which made me feel better. So just very small things, learning to change your focus from the negative to the positive. Exactly. And uh, for me, one of the, the beauties, I guess, of positive psych is encouraging people to be more proactive and not waiting until they're uh, unwell, or particularly clinically depressed, before learning some of these skills, particularly the, what you've mentioned, the behavioural activation. And mm. I know when I, I came across the research around the benefits of increasing positive emotions, I thought, oh, pleasant event scheduling is what we use, you know, we do in cognitive behavioral techniques as well. But I guess again, yeah, the the encouragement is to implement them into your life, you know, so that that you're building that positive emotional state as a potential buffer against uh, mental illness as well. 
And sometimes people will say, yeah, but that's not going to solve my problem. Doing positive events isn't going to, mm-hmm. you know, change what's happening in my life. It's not going to change my, you know, difficult relationship with my daughter or it won't change, you know, this terrible job that I've got. It's true that it won't change other things, but if you can lift your mood nevertheless mm. and you keep focusing on just maintaining, just tweaking that that mood and just lifting it through doing things that even for a short period of time lift your mood, it can actually help you to move out of that depression. And when you move out of that depression, you can then address some of those problems more effectively or you can actually see them in a more objective way. One of the problems with when you're in a depressed state is that you can't see things objectively. No, I know I often think, Sarah, hope is one of my top character strengths and I often think, you know, as the high hope therapist that I used to be, I don't currently practice therapy, but, you know, I'd be sitting there seeing all of these pathways and options for them and Mm. uh, the clinically depressed client thinking was so closed down that they weren't able to see those. And so, uh, again, the research now is supportive of exactly what you've said, that if we can cultivate a little bit of positive emotion, that our thinking broadens, our perception, our visual perception actually broadens. So we see more in our environment and we tend to be more solution-focused and creative. So there's some real benefit for those that are suffering with clinical depression, but I think, you know, for all of us in terms of uh, keeping our mood healthy. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting the number of times I, when I've spoken to people with depression and they say, I don't have any friends, you know, I don't have any real friends. I, you know, my job is awful. And, you know, they'll tell me about all the terrible things in their lives. And then when their mood improves, suddenly they discover, actually, they do have friends, <laughs> yes. but they just didn't perceive them in, in a positive way. And that's sort of the, the negative effect of, of cognition on mood. And actually, they discover that their job is actually pretty good and it's got benefits as well. So quite often, you really see that change in perception of of, of everything that's happening in your lives. Exactly. And again, because you've been in this field for so long, what are your observations and and thoughts? I mean, for me too, over the last 20 years, it's changed so much with so much more, I guess, education, you know, in the community, Are You Okay Day? I mean, organisations like Beyond Blue and Black Dog do incredible work as well. What are your thoughts around the the changes uh, since we first entered the field? Yeah, I mean, one of the the really good things is that there's gradually greater awareness and acceptance of mental illness and recognition that it sort of affects about half the population at some stage in their lives. Yeah. So it's gradually being destigmatized, even though we have we have a, a little bit of way to go. But in addition to that, therapeutic approaches have also changed. Mm. So I think, you know, even if you look at cognitive behavior therapy, which historically really focused on the content of thoughts, there's a lot more emphasis now on process, thought processes. So really going into sort of watching the way your mm. own mind works rather than just getting really caught up in what you're thinking is right now. So just observing the process of overthinking, overanalyzing, ruminating, speculative worrying. So kind of being curious, being able to label, notice what's going on. I think there's there's also a really interesting awareness of uh, metacognitive beliefs. And metacognitive beliefs are beliefs about our own thinking, which are unconscious. Most of us don't even realise we have metacognitive beliefs, but we all do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, someone might, may have low self-esteem. And by the way, low self-esteem is a really strong predictor of both low mood and depression. Mm. And when we sort of work with that 
often you'll find that there's a real resistance to change. And one of the things that we've sort of discovered is sometimes people feel like, hang on, if I start to feel good about myself or if I start to accept who I am or if I start to practice self-compassion, I'll never improve. I'll lose my motivation. It's being hard on myself, seeing myself as defective somehow at some deep level is what protects me. It keeps me on guard. It means that I have to keep, you know, it makes me want to change and be a better person. So that's an example of a metacognitive belief. And most people actually don't realize it. And the way that we often bring them to the surface is get them to close their eyes and imagine they've already achieved what it is that they're resisting. So, for example, if if I see somebody who's who's a, a worrier, an excessive worrying, I say, close your eyes, imagine yourself not worrying, imagine yourself going about your business at home, doing the things that you normally do, and you are free of worrying. And when we do that, they get enormous resistance. Right. And they hang on. So, so tell me what's going on there. Oh, well, then I won't be prepared or bad things can happen and I won't be ready uh-huh. for them. So they're, they're examples of metacognitive beliefs. My worrying keeps me safe. My worrying helps me to be prepared. Right. Um, we can do the same exercise with someone who's a perfectionist and say, imagine being reducing your perfectionism and you get huge resistance <laughs> and it'll be, you know, oh, but my perfectionism is what protects me. It keeps right. makes me special. It means that I'm the best. If I let go of this thinking style, I'll be a nobody. So you, it, it really brings to the surface a whole lot of beliefs that, that are underlying there. And I think we need to understand some of those metacognitive beliefs before we can achieve cognitive change. We need to actually understand the beliefs that are sitting in the unconscious that cause you to resist that cognitive change. So I think just a very simple test is close your eyes, visualize, imagine yourself actually experiencing what you are currently resisting and what comes up for you. And and with self-compassion, for example, that comes up all the time. If I'm self-compassionate, I won't be hard on myself. And if I'm not hard on myself, I'll be hopeless and I won't perform and I'll never excel and I'll never be the best or whatever it is that they think. People have frequently have strong resistance to self-compassion because of those metacognitive beliefs. Gee, that's really interesting, Sarah. And are you taking a primarily then cognitive challenging or restructuring then to some of those beliefs or what's your approach to, to working with those? Part of it is just self-awareness, psychoeducation, right. understanding what they are, understanding their fears. Sometimes we might even do some chair work. So we have the, the part that believes that it would be dangerous to change and the yes. other part that that actually can see how unhelpful it is to hold on to, to those beliefs. And sometimes we just do behavioural experiments and it might be, wow. okay, so let's just see. So someone who's worried about releasing negative self-esteem because they won't be their best, they'll say, let's just for the next one week see what happens if you just let go of that, if you, every time you find yourself feeling negative, just remind yourself and we might sort of come up with some you know, simple cognitive thing to, to keep in mind. And they're often very reluctant to do it, but let's just do it for a week. And they come back and we say, well, what have been the consequences? You know, did you find that you, you know, you made a mess of everything? Did you find that people stopped liking you? Mm-hmm. And, and then we try and extend those the experiments. And some of those experiential methods like behavioral experiments, like chair work, and sometimes even using imagery can be really powerful in getting people to change the way they see themselves. Absolutely. Now, we've spoken quite a bit about, I guess, mood from a depression perspective. And my observation is that sort of entered the community uh, awareness long before, I guess, anxiety. But now, particularly since COVID, people are becoming even more aware of anxiety disorders. Would you agree with that as well? 
Yes, it's an interesting thing that people have been talking about, you know, the scourge of anxiety or the, you know, the enormous increase in anxiety. I think with the exception of last year where there was, I think, an increase in anxiety because of uncertainty, so we did experience anxiety, generally the prevalence of anxiety in the population has been reasonably stable but always high and anxiety and anxiety-related disorders are are the most common of all the different mental health problems that we experience. Our brain is designed to focus on threat and from an existential or survival perspective, that's really important. I mean, it's, you know, it has evolutionary value. So we, you know, for that reason, we we find that anxiety-related disorders are the most common issues that people face and people deal with your uh, recordings. They were tapes in the early days and they went to discs and then think DVDs and now they're all available, I think, through Spotify online or iTunes. And um, Letting Go of Anxiety, was that the name of the progressive muscle relaxation? Uh, that actually has a combination. Right. So there's got some imagery, it's got some progressive muscle relaxation, it's got some self-talk, it's actually getting people to recognise worrying and, you know, why we worry. So it's actually got six tracks that cover different components of anxiety. There's letting go, which is uh, progressive muscle relaxation followed by meditation and a little bit of self-talk as well. It's interesting with progressive muscle relaxation, it's actually gone out of favour a little bit compared to mindfulness. I think mindfulness has really taken over and I actually gave a, a workshop yesterday and asked people, everyone knew about mindfulness and yes. a lot of people have never heard of progressive no. muscle relaxation, which I found really surprising. Me too, Sarah. I think it's actually still effective and I mean, so- if you actually, if you look at some of the evidence, even with generalised anxiety disorder, it helps people to reduce anxiety. And with mindfulness, it starts with the mind, but it's actually, so yes, if we, when we do mindfulness strategies, it can actually reduce the tension in our body. Progressive muscle relaxation starts at the other end. It starts with the body mm. and sends feedback through the vagus nerve back into the brain. And so when we can relax our body and we can sort of do exercises that produce that deep level of relaxation, we're actually providing feedback back to the brain that it's safe, you can relax. And so that also has a really helpful calming effect. And it's just interesting how sometimes we sort of, it's certainly not mindfulness, it's not a fad, it's actually a very, very helpful technique, but sometimes other things are lost. And I think, you know, this is still a useful strategy for helping to reduce anxiety. I couldn't agree more. On a lot of the presentations I did last year, I introduced PMR, progressive muscle relaxation. Mm -hmm. And I noticed uh, on your reflection in preparation for today, you recalled that you first started using it when you were a school teacher and and quite anxious in the early part of your career, I think, Sarah, you'd uh, reflected on. Yeah. Yeah. And I know for myself, my first job as an intern psychologist was in a psychiatric clinic and the psychiatrist sent me anxiety clients. And I spent about a year just learning progressive muscle relaxation and teaching it. And I think I realized at the time, Sarah, just how much anxiety I had myself. (laughs) And it actually helped me learning those skills all those years ago. So, and through COVID, I actually have pulled it out and returned to it because I absolutely agree, very powerful strategies and techniques. It's interesting, uh, Susie, because I actually didn't know I was anxious. And when I was 
doing psychology, but nevertheless attracted to psychology, which I think is is something. (laughs) And then when I was actually doing psychological assessment and I filled in the Spielberg estate trait um, anxiety inventory and I was horrified by my own scores. (laughs) So it was interesting. I actually think I might have even had a bit of GAD. I don't know. I've never been clinically diagnosed, (laughs) but I think I was definitely a worrier and I was definitely tense all the time. And I think one of the great things for me with working in this area is I actually really really learned to understand. And I have to say, I don't worry now. I've actually really learned. And I, I really, really get anxious. I mean, sometimes I do just in a natural thing if I'm running late yes. or sometimes if I'm doing a new performance task, I'll, I'll, I'll feel a bit of anxiety, but I'm generally not anxious. So I actually think, and perhaps it's also, you know, years of teaching, change your thinking and and really sort of developing cognitive flexibility. I, I think it actually has been incredibly useful for me. Um, so yes, I'm I mean, they say that we teach what we need to learn and, <laughs> and, and, it, and it can be incredibly healthy and helpful. Yeah, exactly. My guess is if we did a, a survey of psychologists and people working in the, the mental health professions, you'd probably find almost universal experience, <laughs> personal experience and lived experience with mental health issues. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And so thanks for sharing your personal experiences, Sarah. Would you be able to share greatest learnings or perhaps challenges or concerns that you've encountered along the way? Mm. Well, one of the things that I think is really important to understand is upsetting emotions pass. And when we are caught up in the content, when we're caught up in upsetting emotions, whether it's anger or sadness or anxiety or just strong feelings of defectiveness and we feel consumed by those, it feels like forever and it feels like this is my reality, this is who I am, this will never change. And the interesting thing is it does change. Even when bad things happen in our lives and we feel overwhelmed by those Mm -hmm. bad things and it feels like, well, my life has changed forever, it's going to be terrible for the rest of my life, things actually do change and even the intensity of the emotion will pass. Sometimes the situation itself changes and what feels like it's, you know, is irreconcilable or irrevocable actually just improves because life circumstances change. And even if they don't change, the actual situation doesn't change, we adapt. You know, we learn to adapt, we learn to adjust, we change our expectations. And when we experience the the intensity of upsetting emotions, we often feel like we're locked in there forever and we will always feel that way. And I have to say, when I see a client for the first time, and particularly those that are in a really intensely negative state, many of them feel hopeless and kind of locked into what they're experiencing. And one of the things that I, I try to sort of explain and reassure them is you will not always feel like this. It feels like you will, but upsetting emotions pass. And over time, even even if we're experiencing, you know, if we have negative experiences at various times, we often have positive experiences as well. And, you know, it's useful to focus that we don't always feel terrible and emotions change, moods change, things change. Yes, I'm trying to think of the researcher's name. It might have been Dan Gilbert that did the work on effective forecasting to basically show, as you've said, that we're not that great at forecasting into the future, our our mood states, and as you said, probably overestimating how long they will last for, in fact. 
That's right. And especially when we're caught up in that low mood. I mean, mood and emotions affect our brain. It affects mm. what's going on on a, on a primitive level. And it's actually really difficult to see things in an objective way when you're in that state. Sometimes you just need to put your evaluation on pause. You find yourself ruminating and thinking, oh, how am I going to change? I'm going to be depressed forever. And sometimes you just have to say, you know what? I'm not even going there right now. At the moment, I'm in a really low mood or at the moment, I'm in a really, I'm very triggered. I'm very activated. It's going to give myself time to observe it, allow it, give it space, give it time. When I'm feeling a little better, I can start looking at problem solving. But in the heat of negative emotions, Sometimes we've just got to sit back and allow it to do its thing. Great advice, Sarah. And you also, I guess, referred earlier on to, I guess, these being skills. Uh, for me, the cognitive behavioral and, you know, the app skills are basic thinking or, or, you know, mindset skills that can have a big impact on our mood. And we are starting to see them increasingly taught in schools. What's your hope for the future? Like, what would you ideally be telling us in perhaps five years time from a, a mood perspective? Look, our, our mental health is our most precious mm. asset. And it's amazing that historically there's been so little emphasis or so little interest in, you know, in, in schools, you know, people study geography and maths and various other things. But what about our mental health when you consider that half the population have mental illness at some stage in their lives and, and the other half may not have mental illness, but they will still experience periods of, of extreme distress and upsetting emotions. So, yes, I would, I would hope that it's something that is absolutely part of the core curriculum. I think of some of the angst that I experienced when I was particularly a teenager and even mm. as, as a child, even, even before then, but particularly as a teenager, had no idea that this was a, a normal part of you know developmental stage, that my sort of fear about connection and wanting to make friends and all that sort of angst about, you know, different rival groups and all the things that I really worried about and, you know, the embarrassment about my parents and all the sort of normal things that are part of that transitional developmental stage. If someone had explained to me that, look, this is part of the development, have a look at some of your thinking, certainly there was a huge amount of um, reasoning errors and mind reading and, and faulty <laughs> thinking. I wish somebody had explained it to me and no. I wish I'd actually learned it even when I was in primary school. There was so much sort of stress and a lot less awareness of kids' mental health. I mean, That's I think right. one of the good things now is, you know, most schools do have a, um, school counsellors. You know, That's kids it. are being recognised if they're struggling a little bit and some of those things are being addressed. Um, so, yeah, much greater. We we should have at least the same emphasis on mental health as we do for physical health. Both of them are about functioning and well-being. Both of them should be seen as equally important and need to be addressed from an early stage in life. And also the other thing I would hope would be that there would be equal rebates, Medicare rebates for both mental health and physical health. So yes. it's interesting how the physical health problems have always been sort of favoured and seen as, oh, well, they're important. I mean, of course, we, you know, you can get Medicare rebates for those, but if someone's struggling with, you know, whether it's uh, an anxiety disorder or a, um, you know, a substance abuse disorder or, yep. or schizophrenia or, you know, so you, you, you get normally it's 10 cents of Medicare-funded rebates um, during COVID, and hopefully this will continue, but we don't know. It's gone up to 20 sessions, but it's still, for some people, is, is not enough. 
And we don't limit Medicare rebates for medical issues. I would hope that they would both be on a par because they're equally significant in terms of impacting functioning, impacting parenting, impacting contribution to the workplace, impacting our ability to function in so many areas of life. Couldn't agree more. And uh, I think in some ways a positive of COVID is it has raised and continues to raise the importance of us being much more proactive and, and supportive of, of mental health issues. And also having the conversations. I think during COVID, it, it suddenly became legitimate to say, yes. I'm feeling depressed, I'm feeling lonely, I'm feeling anxious. So being able to have those conversations, being open about it and uh, destigmatizing it, and hopefully that will also continue. Absolutely, Sarah. We usually ask for a recommendation and of course I I highly recommend your books and we'll put a link to them on our Facebook page. But is there any other book or podcast that you might recommend around mood management techniques? Oh, Susie, I don't know. I haven't, <laughs> I haven't given this a lot of thought. That's all right. Oh, no, look, The Mindful Way Through Depression. That's it. Mark Williams and colleagues, The Ma- yeah. Mindful Way Through Depression. I actually think that is the best reference I've come across in relation to understanding both depression and understanding mindfulness and how they work, how they interact and how we can use both together. And that also, I think it's also available as an audio book, but I think that is brilliant. And that that actually really changed my understanding of mindfulness. And it's written in a very accessible way. So the mindful way through depression. Right, we'll put a link to that. Yes, I haven't read that myself, but I have had it recommended by another uh, senior colleague. So definitely a one to take a look at. So thank you so much, Sarah, for sharing your incredible experience and knowledge in this field. We will put links to the books that we've mentioned, which, as I said, I've highly recommended for many years and I still continue to do so. So thank you so much, Sarah. I hope you have a a lovely day and uh, we hope to talk again soon. Thank you, Susie. And I hope it's been useful to people who are listening and thanks again for inviting me. Thanks very much for listening to the Positivity Prescription Podcast Series 2. And if you'd like to learn more, head to our website, thepositivityinstitute.com.au to purchase a copy of my first book for the public, The Positivity Prescription. You can also sign up for our e-news where you can stay up to date with all things positive. See you next episode. And remember, life's too short to languish.